Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Father Andrew Mattingly. I am a Catholic priest in Kansas City, Missouri, and this is a podcast where I post homilies and random other stuff that I might teach or speak about. Hope you find something useful and maybe even inspiring. God bless you. I want to, first of all, frame our gospel passage today, where Jesus walks through a number of steps that he wants to take place when one believer uh, you know, harms or sins against another believer. And that's who he's referring to when he says brother today. When your brother sins against you, he's talking about another believer. He's not talking about a blood brother. So Jesus lays out all these steps to go through when a fellow believer sins against you in some way. Uh, and in order to explain that, I want to first frame, uh, frame the topic a little bit in a broader context. Every human community has some sort of principle of unity that ties the members of that community together. Now, when that principle of unity is somehow threatened, it becomes the responsibility of the members of the community to address the threat. If they are indifferent to the threat that is undermining the unity of the community, what happens? The community disintegrates. Or if it doesn't disintegrate, it at least loses its luster, you might say. It loses this identity that it is supposed to have. And oftentimes it doesn't accomplish it, the purpose for which the community was intended. It doesn't accomplish its mission. For example, on a football team, if you have a quarterback who, because he might be particularly talented, begins to think that he's above the law, so to speak, and he shows up late all the time to practice, and he begins to be very dismissive of the coach's instructions. He's not docile. He's very rebellious, right? If that problem is not dealt with, it's going to produce a disharmony and a dysfunction within the team as a whole. It will cause all sorts of problems. It'll prevent them from operating together as a team. You have sort of this lone ranger mentality instead of a team mentality. So they're likely not going to succeed as well as they should in winning games. It's also gonna produce a sort of atmosphere within the locker room and on the practice field and during games among players. It's gonna produce a, a toxic environment, you might say. So the coach, and in this case, the other players, the more that rises to the surface, the more the quarterback adopts this, this negative sort of undermining position within the team, the more everyone else has an obligation to address it, to go up to them and say, man, you gotta cut this out because this is ruining our chances of, of operating as a team. And if everyone turns a blind eye, what happens? That becomes a terrible football team. They're, they're, just, they're not gonna succeed to the level that they, they should or that they're capable. Take another example. A classroom is ordered towards what? Education. If you have one student in a class that is undermining the purpose of the class, which is to learn, 
because they're just an incredible source of distraction for whatever reason. Well, at a certain point, the teacher has an obligation to address that problem. If the teacher is indifferent to it, they turn a blind eye, what happens? Nobody learns anything. We've all been in a classroom like that, right? If, you, if you're in the field of education, you know classroom management is a, a critical thing. And if you don't deal with problems right away, they grow and grow and grow, and nobody learns anything, right? So there's this dynamic in any type of human community that when the principle of unity is threatened, it's, it has to be dealt with. If it's not, bad things happen in the community. The community disintegrates, it doesn't accomplish its mission, it gets watered down, all sorts of things that, that we don't want. This dynamic applies in the church as well. The church is a very unique community. It is a community that's both human and divine, but it does have this human element. There are human beings involved. And so there's a chance that at certain moments in the church's history, there is a threat to the church's unity. And what happens if that threat is not dealt with? Very bad things. <laughs> very bad things. Right? What are the, the threats that can undermine the unity of the church? I would say that historically the church has always primarily looked at three things that are the biggest dangers to her unity. One is a lack of unity in belief. This is the most fundamental. What unites us most strongly with one another is that we have the same belief. We accept, we all accept the dogmas of the faith, right? We, we accept everything that God has revealed through His Son Jesus, and whom Jesus' bride, the Church, has taught in a definitive way down through the centuries. This full acceptance, this belief in everything that has been spoken by Jesus or His bride, is the thing that, that glues us together the most. So one of the principal, if not the principal threat to the church's unity is when one member begins to stake out a belief that is contrary to what we have received from the Lord or His bride, the church. We call this heresy. So when a believing member of the church publicly begins to adopt a heretical position, if that is not dealt with, that has all sorts of negative effects throughout the church. St. Paul in the New Testament, if you read his letters carefully, he is at pains, at pains, always to make sure that they're not, that these early Christian communities are not following false teachers who teach false doctrines. He's very concerned about the integrity of what has been given to them by Jesus. So this is probably the principal threat to the unity of the church is going to be a believer comes along and says, eh, I don't believe that Jesus was fully God. Right? This was probably one of the longest lasting heresies in the church called Arianism. Lasted a good four or five hundred years. At one point, half the church was infected by this. Even half of her bishops. Right? So, so it's, it's when a believer comes along and, and does that. Now the church to her credit, in those early centuries, dealt with the heresy. 
This is how the church usually does that. They call a council, they discuss it, and then they condemn the heresy. Say, if anybody holds this heresy, what happens? They're excommunicated. Anathema sit is the phrase in Latin. We'll get to that in a minute because Jesus explains excommunication actually in the gospel today. First time I've ever preached about excommunication. Probably first time you've ever <laughs> heard it in a homily. So that's the biggest threat to the church's unity is, is false belief. Right? This, of course, as we know very much, is rampant throughout the church today. Um, and, and this is a big reason why the church is very sick uh, and not unified. Because false belief among believers has not been addressed for many, many decades, even in sort of upper echelons of the church. The second thing that can affect the unity of the church in a big way is when a believer lives a way of life that is directly contrary to the gospel and still claims that they're fully Catholic. Right? So they're living a way of life that's public, that's gravely sinful, and they say, yeah, like, of course I'm, I'm still Catholic. This can apply to many things, so I'll save you giving some modern-day examples. Um, but this undermines the unity of the church in a very, very significant way. Uh, St. Paul in the early church was at pains to address instances of this in early communities as well. If you read 1 Corinthians 5, he addresses a situation like this. There was a man in the, in the Christian community at Corinth a member, he was a, he was a Christian, who was living in a, a situation of concubinage, basically, with his stepmother. This incestuous relationship. And St. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, what? You're tolerating this man living in your midst? He's a source of disunity? You've warned him and he hasn't repented. Therefore, he needs to be cast out of the Christian community. St. Paul gives them very clear instructions, and he's following exactly what the Lord laid out in the Gospel today. If this man is living, he's claiming that he's a follower of Jesus, yet he's living in a way that is directly contrary to what Jesus taught, that is undermining the unity of the church, and if he's not willing to change, he's not willing to repent, he needs to be ejected from the community, excommunicated, literally placed outside of the community. Right? And uh, the last, the, the third thing that can really affect the unity of the church, so you have, you know, disunity of belief, you have a way of life that contradicts the gospel, and then you have sort of uh, sin between believer and believer. And this is what Jesus describes in the gospel. When a believer does some damage, some real sin to another believer, that produces, of course, a great disunity within the body of Christ. Um, and he says that has to, be, has to be dealt with. So for our Lord, the only non-option when any of these things is on the table that is affecting the unity of His bride, the church, the only non-option is indifference. Jesus will not tolerate us as followers of Him turning a blind eye when any of these situations arises 
that begins to really undermine the unity of his bride. Right? Indifference is the only non-option. And throughout the church's history, what has the church done? And by church, I don't just mean hierarchy, I also mean just lay believers. Throughout history, what has the church done when these three scenarios have arisen to deal with it? The church has always followed this four-step model that Jesus lays out here in Matthew 18. We approach the person one-on-one, we point out to them where they're going astray, and we hope that they repent. And Jesus says, if your brother repents, you won back your brother. Thanks be to God. Case closed. Great. If he refuses to listen, then you take along a couple others to try and make him understand how serious this is. If he still refuses to listen, you tell the church, and St. Paul here, sorry, our Lord here means like the whole Christian community. This would include the pastor of a local community, but also others too. And, and they confront him, and, and if he still refuses to repent about his, you know, his belief that's off kilter, his way of life that contradicts the gospel, or this harm that he's caused another believer, if he still refuses to listen, then you, you adopt the last resort, which is excommunication. Say, sorry, you're, you're out of the community. We see this happen again in these secular realms. You know, the attitude of a player on a football team, such as this quarterback, can become so toxic that for the good of the team at large, he has to be let go. If you're in a classroom, and a kid just absolutely refuses to continue being a source of immense distraction to everyone else, tried everything in the book, eventually he has to be expelled from the school for the sake of the greater good. This reality exists within the church. We call it excommunication. Now, somebody might say, oh, that sounds really harsh. Like, I guess I can understand it with secular institutions, but the church... I mean, we're supposed to save everybody, right? That's the goal. And that's exactly the point, actually. Excommunication is what we call in the church a medicinal penalty. It is a penalty that is meant to heal. The idea is that if a person is excluded from the community of believers, they're barred from the sacraments and so on, that hopefully, since nothing else has worked, hopefully this will wake them up and they'll realize, I am not on the path to heaven. And they'll change, and they'll repent. That's the hope. Because if somebody is excommunicated, and 24 hours later, they really repent, what happens? They're welcomed back in with open arms. It's not a life sentence. It's up, it's up to them to, to come back, right? So why is, why is excommunication so such an actually important part of the church's life and, and practice. And I would say beyond that, even just the steps Jesus outlines before you get there. Why is it so important that we don't turn a blind eye when a fellow believer falls into one of these attitudes or actions of disunity? Why are we not allowed to be indifferent to that? Because as Americans, it makes us very uncomfortable to go into someone else's sort of individual space <laughs> and confront them on something, right? Oftentimes the re response you might get to something like that is like, you're trying to tell me how to live my life? 
But you know this is America? <laughs> and do what we want, right? Well, Jesus is very concerned about the unity of the church. So why, why go through all these steps? Number one, as I said, for the good of the individual. Right? As members of the body of Christ, we need to care about each other's salvation, first and foremost. A community of believers cares about each other's spiritual good. If we turn a blind eye to something that someone in the parish is doing that everyone knows about, it's blatant, it's leading them away from God, and nobody says anything, that's a, that's a big problem. That is a big problem. As members of the body of Christ, we care about each other's salvation. So we care about this individual, and that's why, we're, that's why Jesus commands his disciples in the gospel today to confront to confront the believer, to have a love for him, first of all. The second reason is to protect the culture within the community of believers at large. Because if, for example, we had somebody at the parish here, let's say who somebody found out, okay, they're starting to like, they teach at this school and they're teaching all sorts of heretical things that are contrary to, you know, what we know to be true, what we know to be revealed becomes pretty known throughout the parish. Well, if that's not dealt with, if, if I don't eventually go to that person and say, hey, like I hear that, you know, you, you say you're Catholic, but you're teaching all these things that are directly contrary to the faith. You know, what's up? What's, what's going on? If I don't go to that person and confront them, and I turn a blind eye out of fear or, or whatever, what happens? That's going to diminish the fervor of this parish at large because people are going to think you know when they're tempted to doubt the faith or something or they're tempted to give up the practice of the faith in this area of life or that area of life they've been provided such a bad example that has not been corrected that they're going to think oh well, what's the big deal if i cut a corner here or if i cut a corner there right lowers the bar for everybody it gives people a mistaken notion of what the expectations of Jesus are for how we live, right? So it waters down the Christian community. And the last reason this is so important to confront a fellow believer is because if we don't, the church becomes less and less a reflection of the unity within the Trinity. This is a big one. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John's Gospel he prays to his father, line after line after line, that his followers might be one as what? As we are one. He's talking about himself and his father. You and me, father, and I and you, I pray that they also might be one. So when there are fractures like this within a community of believers or within the universal church, when people look at the Catholic Church, they don't see a reflection of the Trinity. And when people look at the Catholic Church, what should they see? A reflection of the Trinity. That's what they should see. A reflection of the unity that is in God Himself. Fewer and fewer people are going to be drawn to enter the Catholic Church the more dysfunctional and disunited we are. So we need to have as a high priority in our life and something high up on our prayer list, the unity of the church. 
not just this parish, but the universal church. And I can tell you that today the church is very fractured. It's very disunified. Part of the reason for this is that for many, many decades now, many leaders in the church have not followed this simple outline that Jesus has given. To be frank, there probably should have been dozens and dozens of excommunications of all sorts of public figures over the past 40 or 50 years for their own good and for the good of the church. It hasn't happened, and so the church has become watered down. The church is very, you know, people look at it, they don't, they don't really see much of a reflection of the Trinity, right? Unity should be at, at the top of our, our list. And it's important to note that there's always been a sharp distinction between the obligations we have towards believers and towards non-believers. St. Paul, several times in the New Testament, even says, hey, if you have a believer who is just not following our way of life and still insists on calling themselves Christian, he says, don't associate with them. He says, don't even eat with them. So that hopefully, through this kind of positive ostracization, they might repent and realize what they've done. Now, that's sort of a practical pastoral piece of advice from St. Paul, not necessarily advising you to to do that (laughs) um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, But it's important to note that the church has always made this sharp distinction between believers and and non-believers. I'll just quote to you what St. Paul actually says. This is in 1 Corinthians. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, so a fellow believer, If he is guilty of immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or robber, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? So he's drawing this distinction. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So St. Paul there in his opinion of the Corinthian community, he's giving them specific advice based on his knowledge of their community. He says, in your community, yeah, hang out with non-believers as much as you want. They could live the craziest lifestyle you can possibly imagine, hang out with them in the hopes of bringing them in. But if somebody insists on calling themselves a believer and part of this community, and their way of life is completely contrary to the gospel, he says, adopt this practice so that hopefully they'll repent and come back. Again, I'm not recommending necessarily you do that with the Catholics in your life that may (laughs) fall in this category for a variety of reasons. We live in a a different sort of situation in in the church today and in society. But nonetheless, we should feel on our hearts a great responsibility for each other, a great responsibility, right? We are our brother's keeper. We need to avoid this mentality of letting everybody sort of live their private life, you know. We're a a family. That's one of the titles for the church, the family of God. And the first thing we need to be concerned about is is each other's salvation. So how you go about living out this four-step process that that Jesus lays out in the gospel, uh, that's something you're going to have to pray a lot about if you have people in your life that sort of fit this category. Um, But pray offer sacrifices, discern well, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you um, so that the church might restore some of its beauty and splendor.